It was the worst kept secret in Chinatown. The Wa May Club started as an elegant speakeasy in the basement of an upscale hotel, serving alcohol to those willing to skirt the liquor laws during prohibition. When the alcohol restrictions were lifted, the Wa May shifted to another black market pastime, gambling. And they catered to some of the highest of the high rollers on the West Coast. Situated in the basement of a four-story brick building, the only entrance was down a dark alley through two sets of steel doors. With a vigilant watchman always on duty, only those known to the owners would be allowed inside. The club was also a popular after-hours spot for restaurant owners, bar managers, and others in the Asian community who didn't have typical nine to five hours. It was where they would have a late dinner, grab a drink, and gamble on mahjong, pai gao, and other Chinese games of chance. But it wasn't unusual to find a few Seattle cops at the bar as well, chatting with the locals and turning a blind eye to the illegal gambling happening just a few feet away. You can't get rid of gambling. You're just not going to be able to suppress it. So if you, you get real active, it's just going to move someplace else. The neighborhood, then known as Chinatown, was home to thousands of recent immigrants and their children. Fleeing difficult and sometimes violent situations back home, they tended to keep to themselves and were highly skeptical of police. But that would all change in February of 1983, when three young men walked into the club looking for an easy score and left with the blood of 13 people on their hands. The floor was literally covered in blood like somebody had dumped a 30 or 40 gallon barrel of blood on the floor. It, it seems strange, but I just felt I could smell death. I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Osorio, and this is the scene of the crime. That is, you know, we were standing outside right in front of that Wame gambling club that has been closed down for so many years. And it's just chilling to think that that robbery, they got so little money for the carnage. And I don't want to scoop your story here. Well, that deadly night in 1983 wasn't the first time Detective Dan Melton had been to the Wame Club. Even now, there is some dispute about why the illegal club was allowed to continue operating. Some speculating the cops were being paid off. But Detective Melton believes it was more subtle than that. As a young patrol officer, I had been taken in there by an older patrol officer, and it was basically a Chinese gambling operation. It had a complete bar, then you went past the bar and turned right, and you were in a room that was just all round tables for, for cards. At that time, there was a toleration policy in King County. And in what we called then Chinatown, the international district, everybody knew the Asians all gambled. And so there were different gambling places around Chinatown. It was just kind of a cultural thing and nobody really took it too seriously. Occasionally, the vice unit would make a raid on one of the gambling dens. And it was usually because somebody had complained, but it was, uh, 
It was just accepted. In the early hours of February 18th, two young men came into the club. They were familiar faces in the Chinese community and had been to the Wame before. 22-year-old Quan Fai Mok, who went by Willie, and 27-year-old Wai Chu Ying, who went by Tony. Willie was initially brought into the club by an older gentleman several weeks earlier, and Tony likely found out about the Wame while working at his family's restaurant. On this particular Friday night, Willie and Tony were offered some dinner, but declined. They stood around the gambling tables as if they were waiting for someone, and about five minutes later, they were joined by 20-year-old Benjamin Ng, no relation to Tony. But Benjamin didn't come empty-handed. He immediately pulled out a long-barreled gun and started yelling. Willie and Tony drew weapons as well. Speaking in Chinese, they ordered everyone to the floor. While Willie Mock pointed a gun at the victims, Benjamin Ng reached into a paper bag and pulled out pieces of rope. One by one, he tied each of the victims, looping the rope around their hands and their ankles behind their backs so they were hog-tied and unable to move. They demanded everyone hand over their wallets, and of course, the victims complied. The wallets were then placed into that paper bag that once held the rope. Then they opened fire, shooting every one of the 14 victims execution style as they lay on the ground completely helpless. When they were finished, Willie Mock made one more round. He wanted to deliver one final shot to each victim to ensure they had eliminated any possible witnesses. Homicide Sergeant Joe Sanford was the first to arrive at the scene of the crime. Uh, I could hardly believe what I was looking at. Even though I was the only one there, it was eerily quiet. Obviously, I saw 12 people that were hogtied with hangman's nooses and obviously all deceased. The floor was literally covered in blood like somebody had dumped a 30 or 40 gallon barrel of blood on the floor. It it seems strange, but I just felt I could smell death. While Sergeant Stanford was taking in the carnage all around him, Detective Melton came in right behind him. The victims are still there, still hogtied. And if you went into the gambling parlor portion of the building, it was an uneven floor. So these victims are there. They've all been declared dead and their blood is still draining out of them. So, and it's starting to pool in the low part of the floor. Even before he arrived though, police had one very important lead. Miraculously, one of the victims survived. And my partner and I get sent to Harborview to interview the survivor, Wai Chin. So we take our tape recorder and we head to Harborview. And we get there, he's in surgery, he's been shot in the jaw, but he is, he is communicating. Now you have to remember this is a Chinese fella that doesn't speak really good English, but he is cooperative. He wants to get this solved. And he tells us, mock, mock. We finally realize that that's the name of one of the people that shot him. Wai Yok Chin was a 62-year-old man who worked as a Pai Gao dealer at the Wame Club. He explained to the detectives that Willie Mock had been in the gambling parlor one night earlier. He actually sat at his table, and Willie won seven hands in a row. 
So when Willie returned the night of the massacre, Wai Chin was friendly. He was the one who offered him some dinner, the dinner that Mock had declined. He couldn't have imagined. There was no way he could have known what would have happened next. He says, as everybody was being hogtied, he begged Benjamin Ng not to tie him too tightly. He played the old man card. He said, hey, I'm just an old guy. Can you please? It hurts. Don't tie it too tight. And Benjamin obliged. He actually loosened up the the rope just a bit. Like the others, Mr. Chin handed over his wallet. But he was shot twice, once in the jaw and once in the neck. He was going in and out of consciousness when Willie Mock was making his second round with the gun. And for some reason, Willie must have thought that Mr. Chin was already dead. He was the only one of the victims who wasn't shot during that second round of gunfire. At some point after the men left the Wame, Mr. Chin woke up. He managed to slip one hand out of the rope. He then pulled it off his feet stumbled to the door, taking breaks to rest and gather his strength as he went. And once he made it outside those steel double doors, he began screaming for help. It didn't take long for someone to hear him and call 911. So with the survivor able to identify Willie Mock and Benjamin Ng, within 24 hours of the massacre, detectives were sent to arrest their first two suspects. And they knew exactly where to go because both men were already being investigated for the murder of two Chinese ladies six months earlier. They were known as the bean sprout ladies. They grew Chinese herbs and vegetables used by local restaurants. There were some rumors that the bean sprout ladies did very well with their little home-based business, and so their deaths were believed to be part of a violent robbery. They were found bound in duct tape, almost like you would find a mummy wrapped in duct tape, and both of them were shot. The other homicide crew that had been investigating that, thank goodness, had got to the point where they identified uh, all three people that were there. And the three people that were there was Willie Mock, Benjamin Ng, and uh, another youngster named Bon Chin. Bon Chin was kind of a follower. When detectives heard the names Willie and Benjamin, they didn't hesitate. They simultaneously went to both of their homes. Benjamin Ng was found sleeping. Cops also found $7,000 in cash in his bedroom, along with two loaded 38s and an M1 rifle. Detective Melton was sent to the home of Willie Mock. But Willie wasn't there. As they were interviewing his parents, the phone rang. And one of the other detectives that was there picks it up and answers it, and it's Willie. And he hands me the phone, he says, it's Willie, you gotta talk to him. So I get Willie on the other end, and I can hear, at the time, he's in a bowling alley, because you can hear the pin machines and that falling. And I just tell him, your parents are here, the police are here, your parents, your family are really upset. They need to talk to you, we'd like to talk to you. Not sure if I said anything about the bean sprout ladies. I just said there's a lot of police here and they're going to stay here until you come back. And shockingly, Willie did just that. He came back and was immediately arrested. They found guns and cash on him as well. But that's just two people arrested. Cops still hadn't been able to identify that third killer. And they were having a tough time because the accomplices weren't ready to give him up. Not only was there a language barrier with many of the people in Chinatown, but many of the immigrants had brought with them this deep distrust of authority. And to get a little bit more on that part of the story, we found an unexpected expert on this case. Well, hold on one second. I just okay. wanted to say something, Kim. As, we, as I was listening and we've been tracking this story, one of the things that I find 
extremely sad and I don't know if sad really quantifies my feelings on it, but they, you know, Chinese immigrants were known to not trust banks. And that's part of these guys' MOs. Well, and really anyone in authority, including banks, right. but just Inclu- anyone in authority. Exactly. Anyone in authority. But that's why they were robbing, you know, basically their own people in the sense of they they knew that the Chinese, the, the bean sprout ladies were very successful, very hardworking. They kept their money. They didn't put them in the banks because they didn't trust them. And so they would target basically these people. And and there's a reason for it, because according to police, it's a combination of a language barrier that isolates some Chinese from American banks. And especially many older people, they kept their cash at home because um, as a result of the uh, China's cultural revolution, when the communist government seized all their bank assets. So they just they had no trust of the, the banking authority or, as you said, the authority. So I just thought that that was an important part to kind of explain, you know, why you know, these guys are robbing, basically targeting, you know, Chinese immigrants. Yeah, and it wasn't that the Chinese community didn't want anything to do with uh, people in authority because they were doing nefarious deeds. They're good, hardworking people who are just trying to live their lives. They were afraid. So we got an opportunity to uh, meet with an unexpected expert in this part of the story. Jake has been giving true crime and ghost tours in Seattle for more than 20 years. She took us down to the Wame Club building, and she says she's always found the Wame to be a particularly interesting case. In fact, she was one of the only people who was allowed inside the building after it was nearly destroyed in a fire. We'll have more on that in a minute. But first, remember that lack of trust that we're talking about. Jake says it really has its roots in the experiences that immigrants had before coming to the U.S. And it took a lot to overcome that. They had a whole different thought process about police. They're afraid of them and they wouldn't talk to them. And in fact, when we were in that alley, I don't know if you noticed, there's an apartment building right across the alley. And it was occupied then. And when the cops said, did anybody hear anything or see anything? Oh, no, we didn't hear anything. We didn't see anything. Well, how could you not hear something at midnight? They didn't want to get involved. And they actually set up a special phone line with um, Chinese recordings that everything's okay. We just want to talk to you. We're not going to harm you in any way or take you in for something else. You know, just let us know what you know about it. I don't think it was very successful. In fact, as the Wame task force was wrapping up its work, the lieutenant who was in charge sent a letter to his superiors about the friction between police and the residents of Chinatown. In it, he wrote, quote, We quickly discovered almost a total lack of intelligence or understanding of the Chinese culture. And with the exception of a single friendly relationship, we had no ongoing line of communication with community leaders or other reliable sources in the area. From information obtained during this investigation, it would appear that such crimes as extortion and robbery have become almost a way of life. And for the most part, these events are not reported to authorities. Yeah, that's crazy to me. I mean, we're not talking about the 1910s. You know, we're talking about the 1980s. Yeah. You know, so it's really surprising that they just left a huge segment of the Seattle population just like, okay, nothing to see here. And so I'm glad that at least that's one good thing from the story is that they, you know, that I think their relationship changed. Yes. And they worked really hard with the community to basically put the flyers up in Chinese and saying, hey, we're trying to help. We want to solve this. And I think that that, you know, kind of brought them together a little bit more because there was some serious, 
you know, no communication. Yeah. And the lieutenant even went on to recommend that that WAME task force be turned in to a general Asian task force so that they could be more proactive about establishing those relationships and combating the criminal enterprises that were plaguing the community. So now getting back to that third man who was involved in the murders at the WAME club, it would take another month before they could identify him as Tony Ng. He went home, talked to the old man, and split for Canada. He was gone. So where the other two were just hanging around thinking, yeah, we got away with it. And then once we located him, we had a hard time getting him back from Canada because they don't have a death penalty and they won't extradite somebody that's facing the death penalty. So they had to make a deal before they ever got him back. All three killers would eventually be put away for life sentences, but it would take years and a half dozen trials to make it stick. Tony Ng was the only one of the three who would ever see the light of day. He was paroled on the condition that he be immediately extradited to China, and that happened back in 2014. But in the meantime, that lone survivor, Mr. Chin, was living under guard for years. The city rented him an apartment. They put both he and his girlfriend in it. And there was a cop outside his door all the time because Willie was trying to say, oh, he didn't have anything to do with this. The Tongs did. And, you know, that was part of his defense. Well, that wasn't true at all. It was Willie's all game, so to speak. But at any rate, um, they only had one witness and they needed to protect him. And unfortunately, that guy, you know, he never really tr- truly recovered from his injuries. It was just awful. And there's, of course, got to be another twist to this story. You'll remember the club was locked up after the massacre, never used by anyone for years and years afterward. Well, in the middle of the night on Christmas Eve 2013, a huge fire broke out, forcing the owners to tear that part of the building down. And it happened right at the top of the building as you enter the alley. Those upper floors were sealed off for at least 25 years. No electricity up there. And yet this fire started on Christmas Eve 2013. To this day, they do not know why it started. That area that once housed the Wame Club was completely rebuilt. We were there. It looks really nice. But still, nearly seven years later, it's sitting empty. To this day, you will never see an older Chinese person in this alley. They won't go down here. Everybody knows what happened down here. And in fact, right before uh, they were going to knock it down and the bulldozer was ready, the owners had a cleansing, a blessing. uh, for that area to let the spirits release because they were going to tear down their home. And one more interesting side note on this story. Benjamin Ng's attorney in the case was John Henry Brown. You might recognize that name. He is a well-known defense attorney. He has represented other killers, including Ted Bundy. Oh, I did not know that. Yes. Detective Sanford was at the trial and he gave us a little taste of the unusual tactics used by the defense. One of the people that John Henry Brown put on the stand was Benjamin Ng's mother. She bowed to the judge. She turned and bowed to the witness on the stand. She turned and bowed to the audience. She turned and bowed to the jury. She turned and bowed again to the judge. And she kept that going, and they had a hard time even stopping her. Uh, She bowed to all of them a couple of times, and they finally had to, the prosecution had to say, hey, uh, stop that. And then they re-swore her and she did it again and did it again. It was obvious 
here was a mother pleading desperately with the court, don't kill my son. John Henry Brown once told our local TV station, King 5, that he defends the person, not the act, and he said he still gets Christmas cards every year from the family of Benjamin Ng. Benjamin's family was a great family. He was the only black sheep in the family, and they're so grateful I saved his life. You know, we didn't think we were going to, because uh, it was a death penalty case, mm-hmm. and there were 13 dead people. So the fact that we saved his life was something they're eternally grateful for, and so am I. So Brown was asked a question that we always are asking, and that is, can you tell if somebody's going to become a killer? Are there any similarities between the people that he's represented? And he said, there is one. Hmm. And that is that they're all sociopaths. And what he means by that is that they have no notion that we as people, just because we're human beings, are all connected. Mm-hmm. They don't get that. They don't see any connections between people. Okay, so what's the difference between a psychopath and a sociopath then? If a sociopath, is that the, uh, the, the type Sociopath that... is somebody who doesn't understand sociology, basically, relationships between people. Mm-hmm. But they, like, you'll look at them and they'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah, but you're not feeling it. Like, right, you, they can you, mimic emotions, but they might yes, not feel them. Right, and if they're really good at mimicking, you don't know. Exactly. But inside, yeah, okay, and then a psychopath is just... You know, I'm not an expert, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I, it feels like a psychopath would be somebody who's <laughs> less in control of that who's more likely to sort of fly off the handle well, and we be... use we use that term so flippantly these days like okay, yeah let's you Google psycho it. i know let's i was Google just Googling it. okay it. um i feel like we should know this well i feel like i do i you know sociopath is like you i always think of the person with the, the with the the dead eyes like they're like yeah and, okay and they're just webmd.com because that's our favorite place to go to find out how we're going to die next <laughs> Uh, let's see. Their article on sociopath versus psychopath, what's the difference? They say you won't find these definitions in mental health's official handbook. Interesting. Oh, like the DSM-3? Like, exactly. Yeah. Because doctors don't officially diagnose people as psychopaths or sociopaths. They use antisocial personality disorder to describe both. So what is the difference? Let's see. So they have to make it really hard to just basically. There okay. we go. A key difference between a psychopath and a sociopath is whether or not he or she has a conscience, that little voice that lets us know we're doing something wrong. A psychopath has no conscience whatsoever. If he lies to you so he can steal your money, he won't even feel any moral qualms about it. Whereas a sociopath may realize that what they're doing is wrong. They just don't care. Okay. All right. (laughs) So So I've I've met both. No, I don't. I feel like there's sociopaths all over the place that we meet in daily lives. I I feel like many sociopaths are functional. Oh, very successful people. Yeah, because they can hide it. Um, Psychopaths probably maybe not as many because that that really for you to not feel any guilt about anything and just do whatever whatever you want. No well, you matter. have to know that what you're doing is wrong in order to cover it up. With psychopaths because they don't have a conscience and they don't even know that what they're doing is wrong, mm-hmm. then they're less likely to even try to cover it up it would seem. Well, I think that you could know that yeah, I mean, we're splitting hairs here, but I think it's important. I think that you could be a psychopath, but you just don't want to go to jail. Like, I don't I know that maybe society thinks this is wrong. I don't, but I don't want to go to jail. Right. You know, so they would cover their tracks for that purpose. Maybe if it was a huge crime, but if it's like a minor thing that you're yeah. doing to someone that maybe isn't a crime, but is just kind of like wrong or immoral. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that with this particular case, this is what was causing me to really kind of 
What? What? You know, when you talk about Ted Bundy, you talk about Gary Ridgway. We've looked at, delved into their backgrounds. We haven't done Ted Bundy yet. I'm sure we will. But we know about I mean, We know about him. We know about him. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like you kind of get their psychology a little bit. I mean, you understand. But with these two, Willie Mack, Benjamin Ng, those, you know, Willie Mack was basically the mastermind behold, yeah. behind the whole thing. And Benjamin was in on it, too. But, the, you know, Tony Ng, which we can talk about later, he basically was just kind of pulled along for the ride. Well, that's Which doesn't up excuse, for debate. Well, yes. But that's up for debate yeah, because yeah. according to some of the people um, who are familiar with the case, the witness saw all three of them with guns. Tony Ng's attorneys tried to argue that he didn't actually have a weapon, that he was mm-hmm. complicit, that he helped mm-hmm. in the crime, but didn't mm-hmm. actually have a weapon. But there is testimony to argue that, argue, you know, against that. So I yeah, I wouldn't I, let Tony off the hook at I, all. I, and I wouldn't either. I'm just saying that, like, I actually went to the Wikipedia page because I was struggling with this one to try to understand, like, what... Look what? at us now. We've gone to Google, <laughs> WebMD, and Wikipedia. We are expert <laughs> researchers, people. But no, I mean, it said Tony <laughs> Ng basically was brought in at the 11th hour... And at his trial in 1985, Tony said that he owed Mac $1,000 after gambling with him the night before the massacre. And then basically Tony made a deal with the devil. Mac offered to forgive that debt if he would participate in the robbery at the Wame Club. Now, this is where they were probably maybe coming up with their own story, you know, you know to make him look good, which, of course, that's what defense attorneys do. And um, but basically, Tony said that uh, he borrowed a thousand dollars to repay Mac and not be a part of the the scheme. But instead of accepting the money, Mac drew a gun, shot a bullet at Eng's feet and threatened to kill Eng and his girlfriend and then destroy the Eng's family restaurant if Eng went to the police. So that was what some of the court documents, you're like, I am not buying this whatsoever. I'm sorry, but once you are complicit in the murder of 13 yeah. people, you yeah. have no trust from me whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I don't believe a word you say. And and I would agree with that. But I'm trying to just understand, you know, part of understanding these crimes is kind of delving deep and right, doing our right, armchair right. detecting and understanding what what makes people do this. And with these three, like, well, I think, I, like you said, Willie Mock was the, the yeah, ringleader. So yeah. really, I think it's his, it was his game plan. It was his idea. Mm-hmm. So he's the one who we should be considering what was he thinking. Yeah. And Benjamin, who went along, too. I mean, yeah. Tony ho- hogtied them. We saw an actual picture from the crime scene of the thir- 14 people. Yeah. Well, 13, 13, because by the time police arrived, that 14th person yeah, who had been shot, Mr. Thank Chin, goodness, was he in the hospital. Away. Yeah, he used that ruse to say, hey, why? why? I mean, well, now that's so heartbreaking. And that's why, no, we don't want to let Tony off the hook because he's like told Tony, like, hey, you know, loosen the straps. I'm an old man. And he showed, I don't know. I mean, it sounds crazy to even say this, some mercy. I mean, how do you show mercy when you're tying someone, hog tying someone up, right? Uh, yeah, I see it more as as a convenience factor. He wanted to get the old man to shut up. So he just did it to get him to shut up. That, in my and, mind, that's and you why know he what? did it. You're probably right, because these guys, <laughs> like, I haven't been able to, I haven't been able to wrap my head around this one um, because it just seems like so, you know, when you see the the pictures, and and that's the thing, Willie Mock was thinking that he was going to get a high roller, and the high roller didn't show, and yet he still they still went through 
Well, he had, according to some, a gambling debt. That hasn't been proven, but that is something that his attorney or or one of the attorneys had argued that he uh, committed this crime because he had a a huge gambling debt with the WAME. But there has been no evidence of that anywhere. So it's hard to know. I know. And so it's hard to even like even if he did have a gambling debt. I mean, OK, so you're going to go take it out on these, you know, 14 people, people that have, nothing to, that do have with nothing to do with it. And then your high roller isn't even there and you still go through with it because you look at the photo that we saw and it's like these do not they're not dressed like high rollers. They're not. No. They look like they look like restaurant I mean, workers. When I was in college. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was a waitress and we after working, you get off at 11 o'clock, you go into the bar, you know, you have some app, you share some appetizers, you have some drinks we didn't gamble but that's who these people were and it's just like they didn't get hardly any money not like that would make it worth it but another interesting caveat to the story is is what we talked about early on with the police Mm -hmm. and the fact that they knew this was happening they knew this was an illegal gambling den and there were several of them it wasn't the only one in the city there were many of them Mm -hmm. and they turned a blind eye and they didn't try to stop it. In fact, some of the cops would go after work and have a drink yeah. at the Wame. Yeah. I wonder if they feel any sort of guilt that they didn't stop this behavior before it got to the point of 13 people killed in a massacre over money. I think that when we talked to Jake and, and you did the interview, you know, with Melton and, you know, we talked to Joe Sanford, who was also the sergeant in charge on the scene, the sense was they were just horrified you know, like like the community and wanted to solve it. It wasn't, you know, yeah, they, they turned a blind eye to it, but I think it was a different time. You know, I don't know. But does that excuse it? I think that whenever you're looking at things historically, at least I do, I think it's important to, no, it doesn't necessarily excuse it, but I mean, it's like, look at gambling is legal now. You know, gambling well, some forms. is... It's not totally legal. Some it's pretty forms. much legal. I mean, it's like... No, there's a lot of gambling that's still illegal. Well, like what kind of gambling? You, can you find a slot machine anywhere other than a reservation okay. or Vegas? Uh, yeah, I guess. That, it just I mean, there's still like, a lot that's not it, legal. <laughs> it feels like it's so le- everything is so legal now, you know, smoking pot, you know, and I'm not saying one way or the other how I feel about it. But it's like a lot of these laws that were, you know, so like, oh, you can't do it. It's terrible. It's yeah. like now it's like it's, it's I guess no it's big deal. Similar to if you think about uh, like you mentioned pot marijuana dealers when Mm -hmm. you know there was only the black market and they would get thrown in jail for it and now we've decided that it's okay that it's legal and you can go into a shop and buy it and uh yeah i have huge issues with that yeah and so i can sort of see where this is in the same vein yeah like it's like you know it's not hurting anyone this is i I mean but i I, i'm sure there'll be people who don't agree with me but i mean I, i i i feel like in this particular case there wasn't any malice on the police's part to let to no, let this go. No, I mean I wouldn't say malice, you know? but um, almost like malpractice. Could it could be? Or, and you know, there there were dirty cops back then. I mean, we talked to Jake, and she said, you know, back in the seventies, there was massive that they did a cleaning house with SPD, and that you know there was a lot of you know a lot double, of corruption, a lot of corruption yeah. going on. And um, and so who's to say in nineteen eighty three there wouldn't still be some of that left over? Yeah. And it's I mean, if you look at the pictures, I mean, it wasn't like this thriving like I mean, it was a a gambling den. It was it it had in its height been just a place of like opulence and, you know, high rollers in the 20s and the 30s. And then by the time the 80s rolled around, I mean, it was considered a, a dive bar back then. 
So, um, yeah, so I don't know. It's a beautiful building now. Like we said, they've mm-hmm. redone it since mm-hmm. that fire, what, six, seven years ago. It mm-hmm. is gorgeous. They're ready to lease it out. But hey, if anybody's looking for somewhere to lease and bonus, you might even get some ghosts thrown in there, too. Well, yeah, that's also on Jake's ghost tour. But yeah. another thing that's crazy about that is that, you know, the Chinese have a bunch of superstitions. I have a lot of superstitions. You know, I didn't realize how many superstitions I had until we actually started this podcast where I'm always saying all of a sudden, like, knock on wood. Like, I just, I didn't think I was a superstitious person, but, like, I wouldn't Well, when it's so ingrained into your person, it doesn't seem like a superstition to you. That's just how you are. Right. And that's a lot of people in that the building has some bad mojo, and a lot of people feel that despite them trying to cleanse it. And, you know, obviously that... That's the case because it's still vacant. But um, it's kind of interesting just for fun. I looked up um, some of the ways some like, for example, in Chinese culture, you know, beards are bad luck. The Chinese believe that once you keep a well-shaven face and and Chinese superstition is that they believe that any facial hair that looks shabby is considered bad luck. Turtles are bad luck. They have super long noodles because in Chinese superstition, there's a popular belief that uncut noodles in soup will increase longevity. So if the noodles are cut, it will cut the longevity. And anyway, there, I could go on and on. There's a lot of lists, but it's sad that that location has that stigma because it is such a huge part of the historic Chinatown. And now the International District. It's Mm -hmm. not even called Chinatown anymore. It's the International District, um, partly because right after the Wamei massacre happened, there was this huge influx of people from other Asian countries, from the Philippines, from um, Vietnam, uh, from other countries. And so now it's a much more mixed culture. Mm -hmm. You would think somebody would want to rent that space. (laughs) I have a feeling you're going into real estate here, Kim. I don't know, man. I bet I could get a smoking deal. I think that, well, and I think, I don't know, what did you, when I was there, I didn't feel weird being, even though I'm superstitious, you know, as I said, the knock on the wood thing, I wouldn't open an umbrella inside a room. I wouldn't walk <laughs> under a ladder. Um, I didn't feel like weird being the there. The EBGBs? Like, no, I, not I, at all. I didn't at all. Like, it just felt like a bustling community and... Yeah, but you I'm know. one of those people where I I would love to meet a ghost. I think that'd be so cool. <laughs> I can totally picture I actually like went that. to um, what is considered the most haunted site in Denver. I spent the night at this uh, old theater in Denver once uh, with a paranormal investigator who was looking for ghosts. And I hoped and prayed. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And we never found one. I mean, there were some well, weird that- photos with those orbs, but like, mm-hmm. eh, that's not, you know, that could just be your camera's messed up. Well, did you feel like? There was any no. like weird weird stuff. Going I felt on? like a teenager who was at a sleepover camp telling ghost stories <laughs> with my friends. I mean, it was a, there was a little bit of the creepy factor, but it was definitely more of us playing it up ourselves. Well, what's interesting in this story is that after the murders happened, the the padlock that they used on that door that the police put on that door stayed in place for decades. They didn't even until go the fire in there. when they were forced yeah. to get rid of it. I mean, they didn't even go in there and and everything was like left in place. You know, it's just a a sad story. So we'll have also a link up to Jake's tour site. If Mm -hmm. you're interested in learning more about true crime in Seattle or ghost stories in Seattle. She does them both. You got to check out her tours. I'm sure they are excellent. And what was fun, too, going with her, like, even though we're Seattleites, like, I had fun. It's nice to have someone driving, doing the driving, and we're just sitting there kind of, like, listening to her talk and, like, seeing the city from a different perspective, I think. I don't Mm, know. Even if you're a longtime Seattle, you know, you should check it out. It It was fun. So what's coming up next week? 
Okay, so Kim, our next episode is something really different. It's our first episode where we are partnering with law enforcement to help solve a quadruple homicide in Kitsap County. Oh, that should be so good. I, I hope we can do it. <laughs> that would be awesome, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's, it's our first opportunity to, to be a part of public safety and the solution. And this is still very much an active investigation. It's three years in. And they're offering a $20,000 reward. That sounds interesting. I can't wait. Okay. I'm Kim. That's Carolyn. And this is Scene of the Crime. <laughs>